Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, November 15th, 2020. This is the weekly market update. This week's update won't be that extensive just because I wasn't able to gather too much information, really busy week and not a lot of market flow, but some important things did take place this week and I will get into those. Okay, and the reality check. Uh, I thought this was an excellent slide. Why? Because it shows the percentage share of income gains during economic expansions that occur that went to basically the top 1% and bottom 99% of earners. And what you can see here is as the decades have went by, you've had more and more um, of the income gains going to the top 1%, okay? And you've had less and less income gains going to the bottom 99%. One thing I will note is right around in 1971 is when Nixon closed the gold window. Am I suggesting that that's the only reason why income gains have went majority-wise to the upper 1%? No, but I think it has a big impact. Why? Because as we got off a gold standard, as we got off a methodology to control government and to control central banks, we entered a period of financialization of the markets. We entered a period where government realized that it could use created money, created out of thin air, to advance its own political agenda, for politicians to give people things and not have to pay for them. And when you create money out of thin air, when you have an inflationary mindset, the people at the top get their hands on the money first, okay? Um, they're the ones that have assets, they're the ones that have access, they get the money first and they're able to put it to work. Uh, if you're a plumber working for some plumbing company, you don't have access to the Federal Reserve market system or desk or the New York Fed and are able to do little deals and trade your treasury bills in for you know cash that you can deploy into the stock market or some leverage schemes that you're uh, running. And obviously, you know, we've seen that's, this is my view. And, you know, we've created this, I've said it before, you know, people hear what they want to hear on these videos that I make, but I'm against the entire political class, uh, whether it's Republican, Democrat, whatever. These people have created an oligarchy where, and they have created a partnership with large businesses, big business wealthy people, connected people. They all went to the same schools. They all go to the same clubs. They all are pretty much in the same cities, Washington, D.C., New York, San Francisco, L.A. And they, co they all mingle. They all, you know, do things for their benefit. They give each other's kids jobs. I mean, it goes on and on. You think, you know, the center of financial, you know, bigness is not, you know, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or Peoria, Illinois, or Shreveport, Louisiana. And, you know, we're getting to a point now where, you know, they don't know what to do. Things are spinning out of control. They're trying to keep the game going, but they're still creaming off profits. They're still creaming off uh, more for themselves. You know, we've talked about it before. It goes everything from the creation of these crooked 
special purpose vehicles where the treasury creates these vehicles, the Fed finances them, they're out buying corporate junk bonds. Uh, obviously, people on Wall Street knew well in advance what they were going to do because they front ran the Fed. Okay, don't sit there and tell me that guys that went to Wharton Business School together, one works at the Fed, at the New York Fed trading desk, and one that works at Goldman Sachs, they don't talk. Well, you know, you bought that, not me. And, you know, we've, they've turned, they've allowed to turn this political stuff into a us versus them football game, basketball game, where I'm on one team and you're on the other. And it distracts from what's really happening. Like I said, it's easier to understand good guy, you know, white hat, black hat, you know, good guy, bad guy, than it is to understand how the Federal Reserve System works, to understand how finance works. Most people are just not capable, nor do they have an interest. And so they have a cartoon version of what's going on. But what I'm trying to get to here is that this is not going to change, okay? And you're going to see as we go forward, you know, what I thought was interesting from this election, whether you like the results or don't like the results, is that, you know, bad orange man, bad represented populism. He represented people that felt they didn't have a voice. He had 72 million people vote for him. It's one of the largest, if not the largest votes that were gotten by a uh, incumbent president. And he still lost, it looks like, although we don't really know the outcome. But it looks like he's going to lose. Those people aren't going away. Their frustrations aren't going away. They're not going to be happy with what they, what's going on. And the problem is people are looking to the political class to fix these things, and it's not going to happen. I mean, the whole edifice needs to be torn down. And that's not going to happen from voting. So I see continued disparities here. Uh, this isn't going to get changed because you have a 50-year, you know, <laughs> oligarch, representative of the oligarchy in there now. Uh, Joe Biden is not an agent for change. Uh, he's going to keep the status quo. You'll see some marginal things. Let's take oil and gas, for example. This is not going to ban fracking. Ban fracking on f maybe federal lands and not issue new leases, but they're not going to come across and just do it flat. I mean, oil prices would go over $100 a barrel in a week. It's not going to happen. So these people um, are the kind of people that if you give them money, they, they get in bed. That's what they do. Um, you can deny it. You can not view it that way, but they're all like that. That's how they get elected. They have to take in money. Go look. It's public knowledge. I mean, they give you this information. They laugh in your face, people. They think you're dumb. Go look at who gives money to all these politicians that you worship. It's, it's not, you know, small donors with $18 average contributions. It's very big corporations and PACs and organi orga organized people that want something for the money that they give. They're not doing it because they think these politicians, whether it's Mitch McConnell or you know, um, you know, Chuck Schumer, they're so wonderful. They're going to do such great things. So such a charismatic figure. No, they want something for the money that they're giving. And the things that they want are not what's necessarily beneficial for the majority. And this is going to continue regardless of who's in there. Okay. And uh, until it gets to a point where it can't continue. Now, I don't know where that is, but, uh, you know, this is going to get worse, not better. And what you're going to see is more tumultuous political um, outcomes or elections or whatever, because you're going to have this constant 
shifting back and forth of between left and right, but it's going to be from pop, from a populist bent. Okay, as the as the oligarchy tries to hold on to its power, to hold on to its wealth, but there's a seismic shifts happening under them, and uh, they were able to get away with it this time, but they barely did. I mean, Joe Biden barely won if he wins. Um, that party lost seats to the Republicans. The Senate wasn't taken. There's really no mandate there. And you're seeing more and more populism, more and more division growing in the country. And uh, it, it all comes back to this, in my view. Okay. Um, people vote with their pocketbooks. All these other issues are secondary. They're not, that doesn't mean they're not important. But ultimately, if you can't put food on the table and you're facing going, living in the street, that kind of takes precedent over your views on the Second Amendment or free speech. So, um, you know, I expect more, like I said, more swings of populism back and forth and people getting more angry, but I'm not sure it's going to get manifested in real change, political change that's going to affect people's lives in a positive way. But we'll see. What doesn't change, regardless of who's in there, is that the U.S. is piling up record budget deficits. Treasury Department reported on Thursday that the federal government ran up a record October deficit of $284 billion, double the red ink of the same month a year ago, as revenues declined while spending to deal with the impact of the coronavirus soared. You may not know, or you will recall if you do know, that the government's fiscal year starts in October. So it starts, goes from October of 2020 to September of 2021. So this is the first month of the new fiscal year, and you already have a $284 billion deficit. And the deficit was double the $134 billion deficit logged in October 2019. It smashed the previous October record of $176 billion set in 2009. You will recall that was the last time we had a financial crisis. That was the uh, year after the great financial crisis when the government was spending heavily to lift the country out of a deep recession caused by the 2008 financial crisis. Look, these people don't know what to do, okay? Um, they may or may not have made the right calls around the virus, which must not be named on YouTube because the algorithm will ban you. But, you know, they're calling, some places are locking down again. You have to look at, it's like Bastiat said. Frederick Bastiat was a French economist back in the 18th century. It's easy to say, well, we're just going to lock things down and people's, you know, ignore the secondary and third, third level effects of doing that, which is people's businesses, job losses. People still have to exist. And this idea that we could just create money out of thin air and give it to people and rack up these deficits, we can do that. We, yes, in fact, we can do that until we can't. As, as the character in the Hemingway novel said, was asked, how did you go broke? Very slowly and then all at once. And that's how these things manifest. You know, we have, unfortunately, a new cohort of economists that are propagandizing a, a way of thinking called MMT, Modern Monetary Theory that the deficits don't matter, we can do these things, we can reshape society, we can do the right thing for people because we create our own currency. We can just create as much currency as we need to for programs to help people to make things better for people. And that sounds great. 
but where in history has that worked? So all throughout monetary history for the last 5,000 years, everybody got it wrong until this new cohort of enlightened people came along. And this is the typical Goss plan, the typical uh, arrogant thinking of the elites. This is going to be a problem at some point, people. Okay, we've got to get this stuff under control. They're talking about now, analysts are saying, you could have a budget deficit this year, in this fiscal year, of anywhere between three and five trillion dollars. That could be 25%, 20 to 25% of GDP. On top of the almost 30 trillion dollars in debt we have. And now you, people ask me or are insistent that interest rates can go up, how? How high can the deficits go? How high can the balance sheet of the Fed go to accommodate this? I mean, Felix Zuhoff in his, who's a Swiss, uh, fi you know, financial guy, very wise guy, used to be on the Barron's Roundtable. He thinks that the Fed's balance sheet could go to 30 to $40 trillion over the next five to 10 years. I mean, this, this is astronomical. And how you cannot think that hard assets are in gold and Bitcoin and things that cannot be inflated. I mean, even baseball cards or Ford Mustangs, antique cars, all this stuff's going up in value because this money's being created at like breakneck speeds. You know, there's going to be a package. There's going to be a more spending uh, after we get through this uh, election stuff, maybe not in the lame duck session, but you know, early next, probably late January, early February. And, and the starting point is 2.2 trillion they're talking. And the Democrats want more. Nancy Pelosi and Schumer want like three and a half trillion dollars. So you're going to get something regardless of who's the president or how things shake out. And then you're having, talking about having more lockdowns, but nobody is, is trying to assess the unseen effects and what that means. And then you're being told by these new cohorts of academics like Stephanie Kelton that these things don't matter. As long as we don't have inflation, we can do this. Yeah, but at what point do you get inflation? I mean, you can't just create unlimited amounts of currency units. This is why these, these hard assets like gold, even though it's pulled back recently, it's, you know, 1850, 1880, whatever it's at. So this is just for the first month of the fiscal year. You have a record budget deficit and no one cares. No one talks about it. And that's what's really scary is that no one in government now, everybody's on board with spending more money. It's just the amount. There is no break on this. No one is trying to pull back on the reins. Oops. Okay, here's something I wanted to point out. I've been harping on this for a while. I got this off Twitter. Um, this is why I say you should be on Twitter. This is a um, showing you the growth stocks as based on the red line with the MSCI World Growth Index. And the blue line is the value market uh, is going, you know, and what you see is these rubber bands, basically. Somebody placed this on here, affecting that uh, these things get to extremes, as you can see in the past, and they snap back. Uh, growth or value will outperform the other uh, you will see that back here in 99, 2000, during the um, 
tech bubble. You had growth really outperforming performing value, and you see it snapped back here. Then value outperformed and growth underperformed for a long time. Value outperformed, and then the same thing. It snapped back, and now growth has outperformed massively, and value has outperformed, underperformed massively. And the supposition here, or the uh, view is that uh, this is going to reverse. That's what I've been saying. That's the whole basis of the actionable intelligence alert newsletter, that we think that um, you know we're at extremes and that these extremes don't last, and that uh, things, when they outperform for a significant amount of times, they have a tendency to return to the mean and then underperform. And conversely, things that underperform have a tendency to return to the mean and then outperform. We've seen that in the past. Now, this isn't the whole history of the market. This only goes back for a couple, you know, till 95. But uh, I think that, the, you know, when we talked about the 10 rules of investing with Bob Farrell, this is one of the things he talked about. You're talking about, you know, going back 40, 50 years market wisdom. So something to keep an eye on uh, when it comes to cyclical extremes, arguably nothing compares to the current day. And I would uh, suggest that that's true. And what I wanted to point out here was, you know, in the last week, um, energy, this is the XLE. It's a representation of the, um, basically your larger energy stocks. And you can see we had this big gap up earlier in the week. This was an uh, announcement, or maybe it was, yeah, it was earlier in the week, I believe, um, based on the announcement of the coronavirus vaccine and its uh, efficacy, or supposed efficacy. And so obviously that got people thinking, well, you know, energy demand will come back as the economy comes back. Look, you know, I think as Winston Churchill said, you know, World War II is kind of a apropos here, possibly. We're not at the end, but we're at the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning. So, you know, we got a long way to go on this. Um, but I think that you're seeing a lot of fatigue around this. Uh, coronavirus, you're seeing more and more vaccines, more and more treatments. And I think, uh, you know, over time, um, even though you have like Biden talking about the possibility of a national lockdown, I mean, it's up to the states and most of the states are not going to go along with it. Really, people have had enough of it. They want to get back to work. They want to get back to their lives. And, uh, but we'll see. We don't know, right? And um, I think that energy is really, really undervalued relative to um, the narrative. And uh, just wanted to point this out. It's one of our main themes going forward over the next three to five years. <clears throat> this is something I wanted to point out in the news. Uh, I have a stock in the actionable intelligence newsletter. It's a metallurgical coal miner in Mongolia. And uh, stock really popped in the last few weeks. And I was looking into why that was because it was just kind of dead money. But uh, basically what's happened here is coal exports from Mongolia, which borders China to its north, surged by 17% to 4.65 million tons last month. More than 96% of those shipments were destined for China, making Mongolia the largest metallurgical coal supplier to the country. According to S&P, shipments from Mongolia to China rose to a record pace in September, jumping by over a quarter month on month, more than 8% compared to a year earlier. And why this is, is because there's ongoing tensions between Australia and China. And Australia is a, was the major supplier, one of the major suppliers of met coal and many other things, agricultural commodities, all kinds of commodities, iron ore, 
a lot of stuff, um, barley, wheat, everything. And they've really, the Chinese have really, you know, said, hey, we don't want any more of your products, basically. And what I'm getting to you here is that, you know, we've had tensions between Australia and its largest trading partner have been flaring for around three years since Canberra alleged that there was a growing Chinese influence on its domestic affairs, a claim repeatedly denied by Beijing. In 2018, the Australian government added fuel to the fire as it banned China's Huawei and ZTE from the company's, country's 5G rollout. This is what you're going to see going forward. The United States, the West is waning in power. China is ascending. It's flexing its muscles now. It's going to flex itself geopolitically and politically in its area of influence. And you're starting to see it right here with Australia. We don't need your products. We, you, we are your la largest trading partner. Uh, China says, you will bend the knee. I mean, it's not that overt, but that's the message. And we, don't, we can put the pain to you, okay? Because we can buy things from every, everywhere else. When you have a market of 1.3 billion people, you can get met coal. You don't have to get met coal from Australia. You can get it from Mongolia, Indonesia, Canada. And this is increasingly, I think, uh, you know, this is what the U.S. did for 100 years when it was the world hegemon, or still basically is, but it's waning in its power. And as China ascends, you're going to see it manifest its power. And I don't believe it's going to be as benevolent uh, as the U.S. may have, may, many people may have thought it was. Look, these governments, all of them are infested with sociopaths. They are intent on gaining more power and wealth to themselves. And if you think the Chinese are going to be encumbered at all, both by what uh, academics in the West or people at CNN, commentators at CNN think, you're out of your mind, okay? And this is going to, this is not currently, I mean, it is actionable. It's going to be further, further actionable as we go forward. You know, the Chinese have invested a tremendous amount of money in Central Asia, Africa, places like this, to grab as many resources as they can to create uh, relationships where they build ports, infrastructure, and then they get their tentacles into the po po politics of the host country. And you're going to see more of that. And it's going, they're going to flex their muscles. And if you cut them out of markets, if you try to do things, if you try to hold them accountable for how they treat their, mu their Muslim population in the West or the Uyghurs or whatever, they're just, they don't care what you think. And what are you going to do? Uh, this is going to be interesting, you know, as we go forward and the West is, further goes into decline and we have this whole zeitgeist, I'm just using this as an example, but I can see this going forward. It's like, okay, you're going to cut CO2 emissions and really de-industrialize the West, but most of the emissions come from China and India. What are you going to do? How are you going to make China do this? I mean, they're paying lip service now, but they're, they're just laughing and continuing on as the West, you know, performs ritual seppuku to its economy. You're going to force them how to do what? How are you going to do that? They're becoming stronger. We're becoming weaker. This is just one example. This isn't a one-off. This is going to be more of the norm. And so as a speculator, you can take advantage of this. You know, uh, this particular coal miner that I have in Mongolia uh, is looking pretty good now. It's extremely cheap. It's about one times earnings or less and their sales are surging now because you know um we don't need to get coal from australia we'll just get it from mongolia mongolia will play ball so 
I think that's what you're going to see is opportunities like that. That's the whole point of this. I'm not going to get into the merits of whether this is good, bad, or whatever. What I'm telling you is it's happening, and there's ways to take advantage of it because you're not going to fix it. What are you going to do? Go and protest in front of the Chinese embassy in Washington, D.C.? They don't care. I wanted to point this out. This is what people don't think about. You know, we're hearing, you know, more hype around various energy sources or methods of energy transfer. And you really have to look at, you know, a very important metric in my mind is what energy do I get for the energy that I invest? You know, ener energy is, is invested in and manifested in everything that we do. From farming to transportation to in industrial processes, whatever. And the value added product that you get out, you know, uh, if it's worth more than the energy you put in, then it has an economic value. If you are destroying value in the process of some political goal that doesn't make engineering or economic sense, then uh, it's not sustainable. And this particular, this is an example. You know, there's ways to get, you know, hydrogen's being touted as a way to get us off fossil fuels and be CO2, you know, this whole thing around CO2. So this is a process right here, um, electrolysis. This is where you take water and split the uh, atoms and get the hydrogen, separate the hydrogen atoms from the oxygen atoms. Because you need to understand something. There are no like hydrogen reserves that you can go drill and pull out of the earth. Hydrogen is, can be obtained from breaking down hydrocarbons like oil, coal, natural gas, uh, methane, things like that, or you can get it through electrolysis. And so you have to take electricity from these various sources, wind power, solar power, if you want, nuclear power plant, whatever. You bring in the water, so you need 50 kilowatts of electricity that you put into the process. And out of this, you get one kilogram of hydrogen and nine kilograms of oxygen. Oxygen is just released into the atmosphere. Then you can take that hydrogen and you can either run it through a fuel cell to create uh, electrical power, or you can go into a gas turbine and have a combined cycle situation where you turn a generator to create electricity and then take the waste heat and use that for processes. Long story short, um, if you put 50 kilowatts of electricity in the front end to split the uh, 10 liters of water, in the end, you only get 15 kilowatts of electricity out the back end and 15 kilowatts of heat energy if you run it through a gas turbine. You're basically, this is a lose situation. You're putting in more energy than you're getting out the back end. So this is not a solution that people think because hydrogen is not, in the, like I said, it's not an existing um, in large quantities. We can just go drill it out of the ground. It's it's tied up in other other molecules it has to be split off and so you know this is being touted by many people now will it improve with technology i'm sure it will but you, you still can't get over that fact right and then you know hydrogen is very hard to store people say well it's a way to store look on the front end of this it's a way to store um, wind and solar power that are intermittent the problem with that is is that hydrogen is very hard to store it has to be stored at either very high pressures and the containment for that is it still leaks, okay? It's very hard to uh, hold it in and uh, or at very, very low temperatures. And that 
costs even more energy. So that has to be factored in. So just, you have to be careful when you hear these things that you deep dive them and say, okay, um, you know, I think a guy made a uh, guy that wrote a book, um, I'm gonna try to get him on the show, Alex Epstein about, he was writing about fossil fuels. You know, hazelnuts are a very energy intensive, you know, you can crush hazelnuts and get certain oils out of them and, and, and run, you know, a diesel car off it. But the problem is, is that the amount of hazelnuts that you would need to power all of the diesel powered trucks and everything, it's not, it's not possible to do that. Just because something is engineering, you can, you can do it in a laboratory, it's feasible with a couple of nerds doing this in a lab, does it scale and is it economic? You know, this is why you, it's very difficult to get away from fossil fuels. It's not because I love fossil fuels or I love pollution or I love all the, you know, uh, I just don't get it. It's, we use them because they are easy to use. They are very energy, a lot of energy is compacted in there, okay? And that's the problem. That's why nuclear, if you really, if you really are up on, you know, pollution and CO2, you really got to be a nuclear advocate. You need more dense energy sources, not less dense. That's the problem. And that's the problem here. So you need to be careful when you're looking at these things. You need to remove the biases and just not read an article where somebody touts something like this. And, and then you don't, and you say, well, wait a minute, I'm getting less out of this than I put in. I mean, that's not sustainable. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Um, appreciate the uh, support and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.